before I actually discuss the topic itself, I think maybe the most appropriate response is what of humility, of humbleness. Meaning, uh, it's quite preposterous for us to come and think where we can come and say, this is exactly what uh, God wanted, this is why he did it. Uh, Talmud has a very uh, impressive statement. Bilam, uh, he comes to prophesy, so he comments about himself, Yodea Dato Yom, he who knows uh, what God thinks and what God plans on. And uh, this is Thomas comments, the episode before, if you remember the story there, before he goes to prophesy and to uh, bless and curse and to, in, in his own opinion, the, the fate of nations and hanging the balance of his words. Um, for he does that, he has all story there with his, um, with his donkey who won't, uh, who won't obey him and uh, he, uh, he has to realize what goes on because the jackass sees the angel, and he doesn't, and, um, and of course the whole episode is full of irony, and it's, it's, the, it's the one place in, in the Torah where irony is thick and heavy, uh, because there he is, this great prophet, thinking, thinking he knows everything, and uh, he knows less than the animal, and that's, a, and that's what uh, the rabbis tell us over they say, he couldn't figure out what his animal was able to realize. You know, how could he possibly figure out what uh, God is thinking? Uh, I'll add an additional point. It's a, it's not a simple episode that goes on over there with, uh, with Bill Ahmed is, uh, and then what really did the donkey see there? Did it really have speech? Was it a miracle or not? But for the moment, I think there's, there's also something. Here's the animal didn't quite understand in the sense of perception or human comprehension. It had intuitively felt something. What does it mean that an animal sees an angel? It intuitively felt something, and, and while the human being couldn't even into it. And so, what Chazal telling us is you can't trust your intuition where at times an animal nature feels, don't trust your intuition that you can know what God feels. And uh, for the same point differently, we say uh, every time we fast, we read after Ki Gavu Shamay Me'aret, Kein Gavu Dachem Bekechem Ashvotayim Ashvotechem, the same way the heavens are above the earth, so to my thoughts above your thoughts. And for uh, differently, things from the camera below look different from the camera above. And... Uh, Therefore, before we begin to comment and uh, make any comments, basically, some humility about man's role in the scheme of things uh, is in place. And uh, this brings me ready to, uh, to a second point, which ties into this first point. There's a whole, um, whole big debate uh, in the classical sources, if you want, about the aim of creation, the focus of creation, to which I said before, of course, applies as well. Uh, God's, why did God create the world? At the day, the answer is because that's, that's how He will, and we really don't have the tools to know it. At any rate, uh, one of the questions which are described in classical sources, both uh, Christian and, and Jewish, uh, was the world basically created for man. It is a famous statement in, um, in, uh, in the sources that 
Mishnah, if I remember, that uh, the world was created, excuse uh, me, man was created the sixth day, everything would be ready. It was God prepared everything. It's like first move into a new house. So first you build a house, then you furnish it, then you provide all the trappings, then you fill the fridge, and then you have the occupant come in. So the world was created, and then was uh, vegetation, illumination, uh, the animal world, and only then, man received everything, today she can She got everything uh, ready-made, all there. There's another, uh, there's another perspective, which says, man was trained the sixth day, so the mosquito should be born, uh, should be created before him. Give me a sense of proportion, he shouldn't necessarily think that he's the center of creation. Mosquito, the part of the scheme, no less than men. Uh, and when, uh, when the Rambam, when Maimonides comes to describe, um, to deal with the whole issue of theodicy, why do good people suffer? So the starting point is, you don't necessarily know your place in creation. Men assume that he's the center of creation, and therefore if he's the center of creation, everything has to cater to his needs. But uh, question that assumption. And who says to you that man is the center of creation? Maybe nature is the center of creation. Who tells you to put yourself at the center of creation? And obviously, if you have a center of creation, so everything was different, the uh, whole perspective changes. So before we come and begin to, uh, we have to accept, we have to ask what's our place in this, uh, in this key. But to this, I have an additional perspective about this question. The Bible describes the uh, creation of man in a dual narrative. It starts in the first chapter of the of Genesis, and then in the second chapter as well. And there's a marked different uh, difference of perspective in these descriptions. The first one presents uh, man as part of the natural order. On the first day, it was created heaven and the earth. The second day, uh, and the second day, the uh, light. Uh, and on the third day, uh, the second day, um, it's water and, uh, and so on and so forth. And the third day, vegetation. The fourth day, uh, sun and the moon. Um, and man is, uh, man is described there as part of natural order. Matter of fact, uh, the description there is the following. Um, God creates man. First he creates the fish and the fowls and the mammals and the reptiles. And then he creates man. And it says there... God blessed man and he told him, multiply and be fruitful and fill the land and conquer uh, and conquer it. On the previous day when he created uh, the fish and the fowl, so it says, <coughs> God blessed them. Multiply, be fruitful, the exact same description, almost word for word. What is going to tell you? That man is part of the natural order the same way that the fish are, the same way the birds are. And it's man is simply, there's, there's a, in a semi level of development, of sophistication, but you're all part of the natural world. And as such, uh, man is tied to connect the natural world. This has many, many ramifications, not, not only for disasters, for daily life in terms of man's organic being, in terms of uh, how we treat the body and physical functions, uh, 
and the, how we view uh, reason and revelation, all these things tie into man's being part of the natural order. The second creation, excuse me, the second description of creation describes man's being mm-hmm. unique. Man is outside nature. Man there is created. He's described unlike the rest of nature. God creates man and man alone. And afterwards, man takes natural order and he analyzes it, describes it. And he sits here and classifies nature. So he's please the observer, the outside observer. He's the person with, um, who is the subject, who is perceiving all of nature as an object. Uh, he's a scientist classifying nature. Uh, he's simply a zoologist over there, in a sense. And uh, there is an outside perspective. So from one perspective, man is part of nature. From another perspective, he really is outside of nature. Now, I will get closer to the, the topic at hand, but it's all part of the topic in a sense. Uh, we have, what happens over here really is nature comes and upends man's world. Especially what man is doing throughout, man creates an enclave for himself. Man removes it from nature. We're sitting here in a tower. What does this mean? We create a structure, an artificial structure. It's an artifact, if you want, in the sense of it is not part of nature. The whole scene I see from the window here implies that man has removed himself from nature. He has left nature. We have clothing. We have heat. We have air conditioning. Our food is prepared for us in a certain way. We eat on dishes and utensils. we don't eat with our hands. We don't sit here without clothing. We don't live in caves. Uh, in other words, the whole process, if you want, the, of, of, the whole process is one of withdrawing from nature and creating a world which is outside the natural order. And uh, of course, this is the greatness of man. This is man's capabilities, uh, his uniqueness. And by doing so, in a sense, man becomes a spiritual being. Because he's no longer a beast, he is no longer exposed to the elements. He doesn't he doesn't have only natural processes, but he is also different. He blesses his food, he eats his food in a civilized manner, meaning he is no longer part of the natural order. He doesn't sink his teeth into his meat. He prepares it. He has certain rules, and and uh, all this creates the dignity of man, and. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, everything I see, you know, the whole scene here attests to the greatness of man. However, uh, and what happens when this is, with a flood, with an earthquake, what happens is nature reasserts itself. Because at the end of the day, man can only escape nature partially. And with, uh, let's take the most relevant uh, of it all, death. Man Despite the fact that he can remove himself from the natural world, the most basic natural event, meaning the fact that you're organic creatures uh, living organic life, which eventually will decay, is part of the equation. And despite the fact that we can serve all kinds of defenses and medicine, at the end of the day, medicine has its limits. And because uh, we are, this is now, this is not... This is not only an event, so it's, this is a natural event in some sense because it's true of all nature. It's true of the animal world, it's true of uh, the plant world. But to me, and I mentioned for me as part of nature, I should add, we have you know, 
the whole biological, chemical, cellular mechanisms within us are one and the same with the natural world. Now, uh, the same is true, man not only regarding his life and death, but there are many other things, we cannot escape nature totally. Rain, my, I, I live in Israel. Rain is a major concern. It's a, it's a desert nation, or half a desert, semi-desert, semi-arid. And uh, no matter how much man tries, so on the one hand we can, unlike man a thousand years ago, we can transport water, we can import fruits and vegetables. But at the end of the day, you need water for many processes. And for rain, you can pray, but you can't, uh, you can't control, you can't replace the, you can't replace the rain. And uh, it's true of many other uh, such phenomena which we don't, and the weather, what the weather was mentioned before, it's true, we don't control the weather. We can best try to forecast, predict that we certainly don't control the weather. And um, we have it in, in, the, in the, something like this, this is exactly what happened. Nature reasserts itself, despite the fact that man feels that he's defeated nature. Nature nevertheless reasserts itself, and man is all of a sudden hostage to forces of nature. On one level, they are greater forces, but essentially, it's not only a tsunami, it's not only an earthquake or a volcano. It's happening daily. Because before we are part of nature throughout, it, normally we are able to control and overcome up to a limit, because Baruch Hashem, normally nature works properly. So I, I eat food, I digest it, my walk, I move my limbs, so everything is working fine. But nevertheless, it's nature at work, not, uh, it's not artificial joints. My, my mouth is moving because nature provides me with this. So, it, so in a sense, nature is always in control to no small degree. However, normally we're in harmony with nature. We've divide our lives to be in harmony these two elements. And with disaster, these two elements all of a sudden no longer in harmony but they're loggerheads. And there's violence between man and nature because nature is upsetting uh, the world. Let's take for instance uh, fires. So biologists will tell you that fires are part of the process of regeneration and the like. However, those are only processes of nature and natural. For man, they're very unnatural. Man builds a home, builds a habitat on the edge of the forest, and then it's burned down. So it may be, from the perspective of nature, making a lot of sense, but from the perspective of human life, it makes no sense and it's destructive. So it regenerates the forest, destroys human life. From the perspective, therefore, so these two perspectives of man, Breshit, Perak Alif, and Perak in a sense, they're clashing over here. Nature reasserting its control is at odds with everything we've built by withdrawing from nature. So you have a nuclear power plant, which epitomizes how man is trying to really control everything. But, and, and also nature destroys the building, destroys the structure. The concrete has this crack in it. The, the truck is swept away. The, the earth shakes. The buildings don't hold up. Uh, all this is really nature asserting and reasserting itself over man and putting us back in the same... Now, this, this in a sense, had to be viewed from this, from this dual perspective. On the one hand, to the fourth, this is simply, correlated to the fact that we live in nature. 
on the one hand, we've done best to escape it. On the other hand, we're still part of nature. Now, this is only half the perspective, though, and I'll get back to the moment. But I do think that um, because uh, we feel the psychological element here works as well, because we've done such a good job in our daily routine of really controlling our lives and protecting ourselves from these natural forces, and normally we're not buffeted by nature, we normally are in, are in control, we tend to think, subconsciously, maybe consciously, we tend to think that we have control of everything. That we, we, we don't take into account that we are at the mercy of the elements. Normally, since we're able to 90% of the time evade them, 90% of the time to be in harmony with them, we don't take into account that there's a 5-10% in which we are not. This causes a lot of, uh, from a spiritual perspective, it causes a lot of, um, of haughtiness, a lot of pride. Human pride believes that it's insulated and isolated from uh, nature and the powerful force that work within it. And part of what part of responds to be not only to, to, to A, to recognize the fact that we're part of nature, we cannot escape nature, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't have this false pride that human beings are in control of everything. In the day, there are forces greater than us. There can be forces in the heavens. There can be forces down on the earth. But these forces exist, and the, the illusion that we're able to control everything, and that we are sort of immune from natural forces, and we're outside nature totally, is a half-truth. It's partially true, but only partially true. This, we, uh, we should be careful not to this pride that we are not dependent on anything. Throughout the throughout Tanakh, throughout the Bible, you can see how this con- man is constantly being threatened with his behavior impacts upon how he'll be treated. And we tend to think that we are immune to that because we can control how we're treated by ourselves. We control the harvest, we can control uh, our life. This comes and, and, and reminds us it's not so. This I think is half the story. It's not the sense that not the greatness of man, but the pettiness of man. How small he is, and, and there it is, you have highly developed technological nation, not Japan specifically, but it's true of the world over. If you talk about uh, human sophistication, engineering, uh, one of the symbols of the 20th century and nuclear reactors, and um, you should realize that uh, he sent a perspective for his achievement, A, and B, he's more vulnerable to natural forces. We tend to believe that we're not vulnerable. We are. This is half of the story. The other half is... Um, I said before, man is described from a dual perspective. He's described from the perspective of belonging to nature, but he's also described from the outside nature. Now, how does that fit into this equation? And here you have a very basic tension between, if you want, nature and providence. Miracle and the natural order of things. And here, I think Judaism lives a certain dialectic, a tension. I, I won't be able to resolve it. I can present it. I can explain the two poles of it, uh, but I think I can resolve it because I think, uh, in a sense, it's there and uh, it's a given. Uh, at least I'll, I'll begin to describe it. Uh, and the one I said before uh, is nature, but it's also outside nature. Now, any religious point of view assumes the one, or at least um, 
I mean, which part of the view which is God is engaged with the world has within it a basic tension. On the one hand, the natural processes. And we can accept, we understand that one of the physics of how tsunamis occur and why we may see the geology of, uh, of earthquakes and volcanoes uh, and, uh, and fires. Uh, and that's, that, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, and science explains this to us. And, um, so to speak, this reason, this regularity, this routine, we can anticipate, we can predict. Uh, but on the other hand, the religious view, which views God as engaged with the world, also makes a claim that God treats you according to your behavior. And there's a perspective here which is not the natural order of things, but if you want the supernatural, or how do we, uh, how, how do we run our affairs? The same way my household so we serve dinner not only based upon uh, the natural ability, but upon the inner schedule of, of the house, what the, what the people want it. We do various things uh, based upon how we behave. Uh, we, uh, we reward and punish uh, based upon our behavior. And like a school doesn't send kids on a trip or it doesn't... Uh, uh, it doesn't uh, send a student away only because it's physically it's possible, because there's a behavioral element, there's providence. In other words, our, our behavior dictates how God relates to us, and uh, we believe, in, so to speak, that, you know, it's, that, because that God has control over the world, and he can overrule, and he can decide what he wants to do. So, so here you have, you have 22 streams. You have two different poles. On the one hand, it's that God desired and willed the natural world. He wanted a world of regularity. Think about take Maimonides' uh, perspective on this. The, world, the regularity of the world is part of the divine wisdom. It's uh, the way he has it, miracles are a bad idea. Because the, the way Maimonides presents it, the world is created with regularity. It's only a computer program which runs constantly without any bugs. And you have to call the programmer once a day. You know, you have to call support or help uh, to get assistance once a day. It's much, it's a much better program. The moment is constantly, you need the the programmer to come and intervene. So truly, the the world is a better place because it's regularity, because it's programmed properly at at the time of creation. On the other hand, though, we believe God is able to control the pressing the buttons and deciding what to do. There was this one model, which is that God's the programmer, and that part of reality should be regular. Yeah, he's another program. He's another program. He's the person seeing the controls and deciding what to do, based upon what he thinks is best for us, based upon how we'd reacted. In other words, there's this inherent t- tension between the perspective of being run from above in the mode of divine intervention, divine supervision. Of course, extreme manifestation is a miracle, but it means constant that God basically runs the world the way He sees fit according to His policy needs between the regularity, because he created nature. In a sense, it's part of the broader dialectic I described before, man being part of nature, routine, regular world, and being outside, and therefore God treats him the way, according to his deserts, according to what he should be doing. So we have an event like this, from a natural perspective, we can explain it. From the perspective of why is God doing it. From the perspective of his being in control, and not nature running on its routine. From the perspective of well, why is, what do we deserve? Why is the suffering happening? That's the second perspective. Of the person that is ill. The one that can, 
And then which of these two perspectives is the right one? Which do you choose? I said before, in the Torah describes both. The person is ill. I can run to say to heal him all day long to Kotel, or I can go to a doctor, to the hospital. Now, what do we do? We do both. Which means we believe it's a natural perspective, and we won't sit and pray all day long, we won't go to a doctor, because we believe that's wrong. Because the world is moved by God to be natural and to, be, and to have a certain routine to it. On the other hand, we also believe that the nature is everything and that God doesn't have a say in this and that he's not involved and he's not engaged and he is the, the, the providence over us. is also incorrect. But there is a certain tension between these two. And uh, this, is, this, this is exactly the dialect I mentioned before. You do both. You know, history. Do I do history based upon rules and analysis? Well, I believe that history is because God controls history and does what he wants. Uh, so history, of course, is human. It's a slightly different tension between free will and, uh, and divine control. But essentially, how much God meddles in the world and runs it according to what he believes proper and how much he lets the world run on its own um, inner logic, be it the logic of free will or the logic of history or the logic of economics or the logic of nature, is a basic tension. It's the most basic dialectic because we believe that both perspectives somehow work side by side together. Now, this I said if I can describe how you somehow bring the two together, that, that's, the, that's the question you need to be asked. It's true about how to understand history, but how to understand daily life. Uh, it's not a much broader question. A disaster is an extreme example of this. And, this, this, and therefore, and so I think we have to recognize that the world has this, from a perspective of Jews, it has this basic dialectic. There's no, and this tension will be there always. Uh, final point, bring us to the issue of theodicy, or to leave around, why should people suffer? Why does this happen? So from the first perspective of nature, to the fourth, this is, this is how nature works. There are powerful forces which are unleashed, and nature doesn't, from the point of view of nature, it doesn't take the individual into account. It's true about animals, it's true about plants, it's true about human beings as well. That's from the point of view of nature. From the point of view of providence, of course, the individual should be taken into account. And this really brings us to much broader literature, which is true not only about natural disasters, it's true about uh, birth defects, um, it's about suffering. It's a, it's a broader question of theodicy in, in general and suffering in the world at large. Um, there are various answers, and uh, I hope uh, no one's expecting me to solve the problem, the age-old problem from Eov until uh, to, to our day. Uh, I cannot solve it. I can certainly say it's one of the most basic religious problems. Any religious system of thought has to deal with it, and the questions are often better than the answers. Uh, I think, you know, there's one theological issue the Bible deals with, that's this. All other theological and physical issues that are on the Bible. This is the only one that it confronts head-on and massively so. There's a whole, 42 chapters of Sefer Job deal only with this. And you have scattered other places which deal with head-on and uh, throughout, uh, throughout the prophets. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the most basic question, but... That's why I think you know, I can give uh, you know, a survey of various things given over the ages, uh, but uh, so for you, it's not, I, don't, I don't think it's my uh, job description to solve a problem which the best minds throughout the generations have, uh, 
at that level, I'll just say two, uh, <coughs> two brief points. Um, one is that the basic message of EO, of Job, is a relationship. He says very, very difficult things in front of God. He points quite an accusing finger. With no holds barred, he's willing, he's willing to make quite severe accusations. Unlike his companions who say all the right things. They say that all evil is a, is a result of uh, sin, all suffering is punishment for sin. They say all the platitudes. And he says, he, he makes all the accusations. Nevertheless, he's told that he, is, that he spoke properly and they were spoken properly. And the reason is because he um, he has a real relationship. He has no answers. He doesn't get an answer. And, and what he told at the end, he told the end, at the end of the day, you won't necessarily understand. The thing that what you see from here is not what you see from there. And you don't necessarily have the tools or, or the prerogative to understand. But he has a relationship. He's like a child who's speaking out against the parent. And we all know it's much better to have a child who's speaking against you and says very harsh words, even using a lot of chutzpah, but it's much better, it's a relationship. Child feels you matter to him, and therefore he rails against you. The child feels free enough to speak out to you. you he cares enough about what you feel that he's willing to speak out. The real problem is the child is just nothing. The child is ensconced in a wall in a world of silence, who isolates himself, who won't do his work. I know in the shiver when we educate students. We have students who come and complain all day long, they're like this, they're like that, and, and this, this is wrong. That's fine. What's, who's the problem student? When you say to them, how things going? All right. How's everything? Good. Anything wrong? No. Uh, that's it. He says, no, you can't get, what, what, you can't educate. He doesn't let you, he doesn't give you entry into himself. And he won't go and, uh, and argue with you. By um, argument is a relationship. Argument, even with chutzpah, is part of a good relationship. And he able to communicate the field, and he cares what God thinks about him, and he cares what God's doing to him, and he feels being, they're being set up, he's going to say it. On the other hand, they're insensitive. They don't understand them, they are platitudes. They'll begin to understand what's going over here. They come, say all the right words, but totally insensitive. And this, I think, is probably part of our response to this. We can come if we, and the best would you be yelling at Jeremiah I recognize your righteousness. I recognize your wisdom. Nevertheless, I want to understand and therefore I make accusations. But, um, even if we come with Eo, and we all say you're right. Eo says, no, he says, you're wrong, and I'm right. But nevertheless, the, the very need to argue, the very need to engage, means that he's deeply religious, and he really cares about interacting with, uh, <coughs> with God. Um, the real problem is disassociating, disengaging. And, um, and that's one point. The other point is his companions were insensitive. We can come and say that we trust the we put our trust in the in Kaddish Baruch Hu. But we have to be sensitive to the suffering. We have to be totally sensitive. We just can't come and say, you know, like, oh, yeah, we have all the answers. And we have to be sensitive to feel empathy with the suffering, 
sympathy with suffering, and whether or not we believe that we have answers, and maybe, maybe people come and give you ready-made answers, which being said, God, that's irrelevant. Mourning of a mood is first and foremost not an exercise in theology or metaphysics. It's an exercise in sympathy and empathy, and uh, since in a sense we are all one together, and natural disasters emphasize the unity of the world because we are part of nature, we're universal. Outside nature, we're unique. Within each individual is unique, each nation is unique. Within nature, we are universal. We're all part of the same species. Uh, and this emphasizes the brotherhood of man. We have to have sympathy, and empathy, and understanding. That, I think, is the uh, most basic response, simply to feel the need, the sorrow, the, the, the suffering, to empathize with it, to sympathize with it, not to go about your daily business unconcerned, uh, not to say, like, you know, who cares, I live there, that's the Far East, I live, in, I live out West, and uh, doesn't uh, have anything to do with my day. This should be an event which concerns, which causes sorrow and intimacy. Uh, and the final point, the Rambam, the guy for the perplex, he has, uh, when he explained, when he tried to deal with this issue of, he talked about birth defects more, but the sense of disasters, his perspective is matter is incomplete. In the world, if we live in a world of angels, a world of spirits, we wouldn't have natural disasters, we wouldn't have birth defects. If we live in a world of matter, matter by very definition is incomplete. And in order to achieve what we can achieve, we have to work with what we have. In other words, volcanoes, tsunamis, uh, earthquakes release energy which is destructive. The world without energy could do anything. In other words, without the same processes of the sea, the sea gives us life. The sea provides water, provides various forms of life. Without uh, the world being established on the sea, the world would not exist. Creation describes the world with the Spirit of God is on the sea. The world is founded on the sea. Without the sea, in other words, you can't imagine a world without seas, without mountains, without earth. So the price of having such a world, the price of having a world in which you have these processes, is the occasional disruption. The man is not perfect. In order to have the energy, in order to have the vitality and the forces of life, within the earth, the sea, the mountains, uh, the wind, etc., within the fire, within the energy, so the price you pay at times are these violent disruptions. And so for the tragic individual, for the, the larger scheme of the world as a place, when God creates such a world, these, these things have to exist, otherwise uh, the world would be nothing. It would go back into the void, back into the darkness, back into the abyss. And for a world in which you have <coughs> to release it, to, to, to have such a world, at times these energies are released, and that's it. So I'm exhausted time for the questions. Uh, if people want to wait around, I'm available, and I'm, uh, I'm in the Russian place. But uh, thank you very much for your attention, your time, and your